This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. You're listening to Matthew Fisher speak about his experiences as a war correspondent. We were out on a street. I was with a photographer in Marseille about a year and a half ago in the Arab Quarter. And the Arab Quarter is actually about one-third of the city. And it's a no-go zone where the police don't go and uh, nobody who looks like me would go there. And it was in the middle of the afternoon and uh, we had cameras with us and uh, a woman uh, in a hijab came at us with a knife and uh, was screaming in Arabic that we had no right to be there with cameras. In fact, we had no right to be in that community at all. A group of young men materialized and they pushed her back because the last thing they wanted was guys like us getting murdered in the Arab quarter, but they also demanded to see our cameras. And we showed them our cameras and we had not taken any photographs of any women. And then they said we could go, but they thought it'd be a very good idea if we left entirely. Uh, about six or seven weeks ago, I was in Rosendahl, which is the Arab quarter in the uh, Swedish city of Malmo. And uh, uh, they have a big uh, Arab bazaar there. This community would be about 99% Arab. Uh, and uh, some of them are quite radicalized. And uh, it was in the middle of the afternoon, and I stopped two youngish women, they 16, 18 years old, to simply ask them where the bazaar was, because I was a little bit lost and I wanted to get oriented. And uh, they had not uttered more than two or three sentences before a man appeared. Uh, ironically, he was a dentistry student, somebody else in dentistry, uh, and he shouted at them in Arabic and they disappeared. And he said that I had no right to be speaking to his sister, as it turned out, and he said, you white people are all pedophiles and you are trying to get at my sister. And it's two o'clock in the afternoon on an avenue with hundreds of people. I, I don't know much about how pedophiles operate, but my experience is that they don't uh, approach women with 200 people around in the middle of the afternoon. I suspect that's not the way they operate. But then he immediately got in it with uh, America has bombed and murdered so many people in the Middle East. And he told me the green flag of Islam will one day um, uh, wave over all of Sweden. Uh, we operate in a bit of a vacuum here in Canada. Um, and it's just amazing. I, I'm not against Canada taking in Muslims at all or taking in people from anywhere. I wish we would take in more Christians from some of these areas rather than just taking in Muslims. Um, 
this is something I just don't get. Uh, uh, my friend Patrick Gill, I've helped uh, put his daughters through school. He's a, a, a Church of Pakistan, which is actually an Episcopalian or Church of England derivative, but two million people in Pakistan are Christians. And his daughters go to school every day in an armored bus. And there are armed guards on the bus and the bus, it has screens on the window. The bus gets stoned. Well, the little girls, six and eight years old, uh, the Christian girls go off to school every day. And uh, Patrick cannot get any consideration from Canada in terms of coming here beyond the normal immigration procedures. Uh, and yet we've taken so many people, I think, without really thinking all of this through. I did have uplifting things I wanted to talk about today because this is kind of a downer. Uh, I did want to talk about how people go to the bathroom in war zones, soldiers and whatnot, because uh, I think it's very interesting. Movies are so antiseptic and you don't really uh, get a feel for any of that. I also wanted to talk about the refugee crisis in Uganda uh, with people coming down from South Sudan because uh, Uganda, Canada boasts about 40,000 Uganda has taken in one million. And uh, they've taken them in within nine months. And of course, they have no resources. And the funding from the UN and international organizations is 15% of what is required. And now Uganda is starting to think about whether they can really support this. Three and a half million people out of the 12 million people in South Sudan are refugees. Another million live in other countries that border South Sudan. And, and then the rest of them are internally displaced uh, within South Sudan. It is an absolutely catastrophic situation and it makes no impression in Canada at all. Anyway, that's what I do. I'm, uh, I just came out of Latvia where Canadian forces are and Eastern Ukraine where the war is still going on and I, I was with the Prime Minister at the uh, G7 in Belgium and in Italy. I could talk about him a bit but I won't. Uh, uh, and um, I I am on my way now to the East China Sea next week, and I'll be on warships out there in waters that are disputed between China, South Korea, and Japan. This is north of the South China Sea, where there are seven countries claiming the same water, and it's becoming a Chinese lake, where before it was an American lake. So I keep going, but uh, last year I talked about me being extinct sort of the last of a species in Canada. The New York Times, Washington Post, those guys are going to continue. But in Canada, the number of foreign correspondents is dropping to zero like, uh, like a stone. Uh, we're just disappearing. I'm waiting for the extinction event. I, I thought I'd be gone by this year. It hasn't happened because, of course, newspapers uh, are in crisis. But uh, I hope uh, that I continue to do this for a while yet. I've done it a very long time. I've been abroad for for 34 years, and uh, this is pretty much all that I've done for all of those years uh, to go to these kind of places, and I think it's important that people still are willing to go out there. Um, that's really about all I've got to say. Thank you very much, and as I could say to you, Moses, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Matthew. And yes, Thank you can come back next year. Okay, the continuing adventures of okay. Matthew Fisher. Let me tell a few jokes next year. Yeah? He wants to tell jokes next year. This is good. I wanted to tell him about bathrooms. How long do you take? Thank you.
two minutes for the first Thank one. You. Two yeah. minutes, I can give it. He two. wants two minutes to tell you about bathrooms. <laughs> or lack of them. There are two little stories. The first one we get to Tikrit, which is Saddam Hussein's hometown. I'm with the United States Marine Corps, Marine Recon, which are the, the really big guys. We get there, and all the guys are going in to look at the chandeliers and try to find the golden rifles and all that. I want to go to the bathroom, because I've been in the field 37 days and haven't seen a toilet. I go in, and I find a golden toilet. It's solid gold, top to bottom. I haven't gone to the bathroom for 37 days. It's in perfect working order. And I sit down, and it is magnificent. <laughs> I return 24 hours later, and everybody else has discovered it, but it doesn't flush. And you, you just don't want to go anywhere near it. And the last thing I want to say is the Marine Corps, they have circles at night where all the guys sit in, in a circle after, uh, after the day's events in their vehicles, and they gossip between the vehicles, and they have little trowels to dig stuff out. If you have not bathed for 37 days, there's this elegant dance that takes place because you always want to be upwind of the person beside you. And so as soon as you catch a whiff of somebody, you move a step, and then they are going to move a step. And so literally, if you watch six or eight Marines at a distance of 10 or 20 meters, you will see that everybody, everybody is just slowly moving around trying to get out of the stench zone of the other person. And these are the real realities of war. I watch Generation Zero and all these things, and nobody ever goes to the bathroom. And I can tell you, if you haven't gone for a week because you've been encased in an armored vehicle, you really want to go. <laughs> Thank you. Matthew. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Neimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, Matthew Fisher speaks about his experiences as a war correspondent. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces Matthew to the stage. Matthew was a big hit last year. He is one of the last remaining foreign correspondents that Canada actually has out there in the world. And he's one of the few who speaks a different kind of truth from the kind that you may find on the CBC. Yeah, on the CBC, yes. I could give a whole talk about how CBC covers the world, but I, I won't today. I have a, a small video that I want to show you now 
the fact is, as a journalist, you don't just go out if you work for a newspaper to do the reporting. You also have to shoot video with iPhones and produce these mini videos that they put up on the web. So they are not that professional, but I think they sometimes speak to some terrible problems. I spent time with the Yazidis in Iraq in December, and uh, uh, it was the most harrowing interview I've ever done in my life was there. These are the ruins of the town of Sinjar, which was recently liberated from Islamic State. It includes a mass grave where human bones are visible, as well as a warren of tunnels that were used to avoid coalition airstrikes. For a ghastly bounty of $20,000 paid by her family, this woman from Sinjar and her two sons were freed from Islamic State after more than a year in captivity. Her husband was probably murdered. Her three daughters are still held by the terrorists who boast of treating Yazidi women as sex slaves. Marigold Varko is a psychiatric nurse from Australia. She works with scores of deeply traumatized Yazidi women. Yes, you're always um, shocked and troubled by what you hear because of the, the suffering of the people. Well, you see these people have been persecuted more than anybody else, I believe, because they weren't recognised as a, a race, as a people. They weren't recognised within the community. And so they've been, they've been persecuted and put down more than anybody else, it seems, within the community. Many of, many of these women, they're inspiring to know because of the courage that they show. And they try to leave behind, they try to leave behind what has happened to them and try to establish life. The sad thing is that many of the men are lost, many of the men are missing. They're killed, they've had to endure losing their partners uh, losing their children, their families, and many of the men feel completely responsible for this. And um, so the men, the men suffer an enormous amount as well because they are either they are taken and uh, taken in in enforced to fight in some way, or they're killed, or otherwise they they have to endure losing daughters, losing wives managing life without their families at all, if any of them are fortunate enough to escape. So we, we're, we just work with the people to give them, to try and give them uh, some sort of physical comfort, some sort of hope, spiritual comfort, um, emotional comfort, and hope that they can trust that they can find hope to continue on in the future. Uh, that was uh, uh, the most uh, sobering thing that I did in the past year. I went to a lot of places. I was in Uganda and in South Sudan uh, not very long ago about the, the refugee crisis there, and that in its own way is harrowing. But what these uh, women especially, but also the men, the entire community have suffered uh, is uh, deeply traumatic. Uh, the woman, uh, Murat, who I interviewed there, I, I've never really interviewed anybody who I could only describe as sort of a zombie. Uh, she spoke for about an hour, almost without interruption, in a very dark room that was lit by a, a single kerosene lamp, and it was uh, quite cold in the room. It was last December, and it gets quite cold in Iraq. This was just outside of the city of Mosul, which was then under siege and about to be liberated. And she uh, 
was holding in her hand a telephone, a cell telephone, and on that she had the only images of her daughters. And throughout the entire interview, she fondled and caressed and held as if her life depended on it, that telephone. And she kept looking at her three daughters. Her daughters were, if I remember correctly, something like six and eight and 10 years old. She herself had been a sex slave for 14 months. Uh, and she and her two sons were uh, freed when her family put together 20,000 US dollars. And so she was liberated. Uh, her uh, daughters were not because they were of much greater value to um, Islamic State. And her daughters, the last that I know of, we don't know if they're alive or dead, but they were taken to Raqqa in Syria from Iraq. And as if you follow the war at all, you know Raqqa is one of the last redoubts of Islamic State uh, and uh, American-backed forces and American special forces are closing on Raqqa right now. That is where, as I understand it, at least 500 Yazidi girls are still held as sex uh, slaves uh, at this juncture. And so uh, that I've done a lot of things in a lot of countries, been to a lot of wars, 19 wars, and uh, that was a very special and dark moment. I've lived in Iraq for quite a few years and I visited just about all of these places, whether it's Yemen, which is a total mess right now, or Somalia, Eritrea. And I've had some remarkable discussions, not with Muslim women, because it's so hard to speak with them. Uh, it's just not culturally allowed, but with Muslim men about women. And I remember in Iraq driving south from Baghdad when it was still possible to drive freely there in 2004 before things got too bad. And I was with two Shia men, one was a translator and one was a driver and we we're going to the holy city of Najaf. And somehow we got to discussing women. And one of the fellows said to me, what would you do if you saw your sister speaking to a man on the street who you didn't know? And I said, well, it's a hypothetical question because I've got four brothers, but I don't have any sisters. But I suppose if I saw my sister speaking to somebody she, I didn't know, I might, when I next saw her that evening or next week, say, oh, by the way, who was that you were talking to? I don't know who that guy was. And they immediately, in unison practically, said to me, this proves that you don't love and respect your family. And um, I said, what do you exactly mean by that? And they said, well, uh, she should never have done that. She'd committed a mortal sin. And that uh, as a, because it's a mortal sin, uh, they would have murdered her for this. And this proved their love of their family and that I was out of sorts because I clearly did not love and respect my family. These kind of messages are shocking. I'm no feminist. I'm quite a, a right winger on all kinds of things. But these kind of things really rock you and put you uh, back on your heels. It's, it's just amazing uh, to hear such tales. And I could frankly give you 100 or 200 or 500 such 
experiences. Uh, another one in Baghdad during the election, uh, a woman who spoke very good English. I was out there with uh, two reporters from the New York Times and we, we found somebody who spoke elegant English and she was a dentist, British educated woman. And she started to speak to us in very general terms about the election. And uh, out of nowhere, a man appeared beside her, who it turned out was her husband, and he told her in Arabic to shut up. And he said that he spoke for the family and he would tell us what he thought about the election. And uh, then he took over the whole interview, but he had nothing particularly interesting to say. And she was a very interesting, well-educated, clearly, uh, woman, and she had no voice uh, at all in that situation. Coming up after the break. Two million people in Pakistan are Christians, and his daughters go to school every day in an armored bus. And there are armed guards on the bus. The bus gets stoned. while the little girls, six and eight years old, go off to school. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.